Hello, my name is Laura Taylor, and I'm an assistant professor at University College Dublin. For movements, so social movements, protests, you can picture kind of headlines in the newspaper. For those that had a higher kind of activism, higher participation of young and educated people, they were more successful. So I think we can have a long view for pre-service teachers on how we can help not only those individuals in our classroom, but in the long term, societal change that is constructive. And I think for teachers, sometimes it's kind of nice to imagine your students there making the change kind of once they leave your classroom and they're out in the real world. everyone, thank you for listening to this brand new episode of the Researching Diversity podcast. I'm Jana Fietze and I work as Assistant Professor in Youth and Family at Erasmus University, Rotterdam. And I'm Charlene Pevic and I'm a PhD student in the Inclusive Education Department at the University of Potsdam. And we will be your hosts for this episode. We talk to Assistant Professor Laura Taylor from the University College in Dublin. So what can you expect in this episode? With Professor Taylor, we speak about children's peace building and the role of youth in conflicts. Besides that, Professor Taylor highlights the factors of education as well as nonviolent, peaceful protest. And why was this episode special for us? It is a special episode because of the relevance of the topics of conflicts and peace building with regard to ongoing conflicts all over the world. And in addition to that, Professor Taylor is sharing helpful advices for junior scholars of how to set boundaries and how to keep the work-life balance on their way of becoming excellent researchers. As always, you can find the references to the studies that we mention on our website. All right, let's start with the episode. Welcome, Laura. Thanks for being here. As in every episode, we'll start talking about the past. Why did you become interested in the topic of children's peace building? Well, first, thanks so much for having me. Um, I've been listening for a long time, so it's nice to be kind of on the other side of the microphone versus the headphones. And thinking about this question definitely brings me back to the days where I was a practitioner. So before academia, I was working with an NGO in Guatemala that was focused on human rights. And the approach in the project that I was in was really mental health is a human right. And as part of that, we were providing mental health accompaniment to a group of survivors from indigenous communities that had survived the genocide in the 1960s. And in addition to kind of the legal counsel that they were getting from a separate NGO, we had a woman called Doña Rosa in the group. And we were talking about kind of what she would want from this process and how we in the NGO I was working for could kind of help. And she said, listen, I do not care about the outcome of the case. Kind of regardless of that, I want to explain to my child why I cry when it rains. And kind of we asked her to elaborate. And the sound of the rain on the tin roof, so they lived in kind of informal housing, sounded very similar to the gunfire. And so kind of this idea that she was bringing is like, I, you know, I'm less interested in the structural and more in my individual child, the kids who are there. And that really brought forward like the legacy of the war, the shadow that is cast on future generations who were born in a period of peace. And, and that is very kind of resonant with the movements in Latin America and transitional justice of like the non-repetition of violence or nunca mas, like And that really helped me shift my focus to children in general. So in conflict settings, how are children, how is the generation born into peace affected by what has come before them? And then kind of I worked later for a different organization in Nepal. And while we were there and doing kind of human rights and peace building work, um, youth 
were at the forefront of Janandala, which is like this people power movement that brought down the prince uh, in 2005 and brought forward a period of relative democracy and a, a new constituent assembly kind of ending a 10-year civil war. And that kind of shift to not just children, but also their youth and their agency and their ability to kind of create social change was kind of the second piece. And then finally, there's a very practical reason. So young people make up one third of the world's population. So we should study them, right? We should understand the way that they are actively contributing, the things that they're doing kind of organically and naturally, and then other ways to promote it. So around the world, one billion children are affected by conflict. And typically we study that as kind of what's the negative or the traumatic effect, which is important. But I think my piece of that broader puzzle is how are they responding in constructive and agentic ways? Um, and so that really, again, shifts that focus from kind of just the impact of violence on children to really how are children changing their social worlds when they're living in contexts of adversity? So that long and kind of rambling story is how I chose to focus on children's peace building. Yeah, and it's, we are very happy that you do so for many reasons, but also, of course, right now, living in Europe, having a war in the Ukraine close by, this is a very close topic. And all of a sudden, it became much more real, I think, to many, many people that this is happening and this is happening around the world and is now happening at our borders And I think this is really important to then, yeah, understand how children, the role of children in all of this conflict. And another question I had is then, why did you become a researcher? Yeah, so similar there to this kind of other, it's an unfolding chapter. So I've had a very long career to this point, a very winding path. I first worked in mental health with communities that had been affected by the genocide. And what I learned is that nobody needs a crying therapist. So I was not able to take that on and carry it with me for a number of years. And I think that's one of kind of the piece of advice I now, you know, for folks who want to do clinical is like practice a little bit. It's hard. It's not an easy road either. And some folks have the personality for it, and I did not. I was, I just carried too much of it with me. And so in part, I need a distance from the day-to-day -day trauma. And I also realized, and I remember quite clearly kind of one of those aha moments, was that the individuals that we were working with and that I cared so much about were part of a broader kind of tapestry, right? So these were systemic grinding challenges that they as individuals were having negative responses to. They had somatic problems and mental health. And then at the time, again, I was working in Latin America, and there's a um, kind of a well-known author, Ignacio Martín Baró, who wrote about liberation psychology and that kind of connection between community and structural violence. And that, again, was the aha moment for me, which is like, I want to work at the structural level. I want to understand not just the individual, but kind of the broader factors that led to that and ideally that can prevent it in the future. So that nunca mas from Doña Rosa, like what, how can we prevent this in the future, not just respond after. And that really brought me back to do a master's in peace and justice studies. So that complemented my psychology undergrad, but I was taking history classes, political science, environmental justice, and having a lot of an expanding view of how individuals and communities are affected and what they can do about it. And that really then did the peace building project in Nepal, 
And then that opportunity, I was kind of based at a university, did a lot of guest lectures, you know, about our work. And I really loved the engagement with students. And I thought, oh, I could, I could do this. I could teach. This is fun. I, I don't, I like the one-on-one, you know, these one-off opportunities, but I thought I would like to develop this over time. And so I was thinking, I ah, maybe at this point I'll do a PhD, but I couldn't decide, do I do psychology or do I do peace studies? So this kind of the structural part. Um, And then I found a PhD that did both, and I didn't have to choose. So I was very happy with that opportunity. And there I entered into the PhD that was both psychology and peace studies. So it was the first cohort, you know, it was very new, but it allowed me to kind of get formal training at the research level versus the practitioner level. And that was a spark that allowed me to kind of continue and think, okay, well, yes, I like this teaching, and that's fabulous, but I also want to undo these. I want to prevent it. And we need to have that knowledge to have some of these basic science questions answered to inform future interventions. Like, what is the evidence that we can provide through research for practitioners? And so that kind of dual role of practitioner and academic and then psychologist and peace scientist has been this kind of back and forth or like a zipper maybe is the best analogy of my career so far. Thank you. That's really nice to hear that those things are combinable. You know, it, uh, sometimes you have the feeling that certain professions are very closed off, maybe, or certain topics are very, you sometimes get the impression everybody's working on the tiny little niche. Um, and it's wonderful to hear that you are successfully managing to combine all of these influences and all of these fields. And a question that comes with that is, well, that could at times be challenging, I assume, to combine different perspectives. So which challenges did you encounter on the way to becoming a researcher? So I think interdisciplinary work brings quite a bit of challenge and quite a bit of opportunity. And at times, what feels like gatekeeping, actually just kind of in retrospect, one can look back and realize, oh, actually, this was a chance for me to reflect and to learn and to recognize just basic disciplinary differences. Um, And so I think one of the benefits of doing a dual degree versus an interdisciplinary degree is they were separate, right? So I was fully a psychologist on one part of campus, and then I would walk across campus and take my peace studies classes. And so kind of getting that credentialing in in both was very helpful because I was very aware of which hat I was wearing. And when a question that would come from an audience in one type of talk, I thought, oh, that's obvious, but not here. Or in the other kind of, you know, like the, the unspoken norms and assumptions. And that's something that I thought a lot about because I came back to academia after being a practitioner for a number of years. And so I think one of the challenges is when you're doing interdisciplinary work to really put yourself kind of in the shoes of that discipline for the moment that you're there. And then lift yourself up and be in the shoes of the other discipline. And that fluidity becomes easier with time. And I think then builds empathy for those in other disciplines of academia and why they do certain things or certain papers. So that was one of the challenges. But I think only in retrospect, only kind of after kind of going through that, do I see the benefits that it yielded for me. Yeah, I totally understand. So us as a podcast team, we're also coming from very different disciplines And it can be really enriching because you can have conversations, you can uh, help each other out, you can think about things in different ways. But of course, you also use different language sometimes for the same things or have a different understanding. So we notice this as well. Mm. And one more question I had for you is, uh, what did you learn along the way then throughout these, well, challenges, but also your path? 
So I have a lot of transferable skills. I think that's the positive way to say that. So at times, even as an academic, I felt more like my job was budget management. You know, you're scraping together projects, you want to pay your students, you want to compensate your participants, you need to get people from A to B. So at other times, I feel like I've been a travel agent. And then I think in addition to the kind of the hard and the concrete research skills, right, that one ought to get out of PhD. And then another kind of skill that I'm still honing, but that I think a lot about in my day-to-day work, and particularly when kind of working within a research team, is how to keep others motivated as well, right? So sometimes that means taking a step back, you know, that means letting people kind of come to things on their own and recognizing different working styles, different paces, different ways of communicating, again, also cross-culturally, also across generations. Um, especially now that I'm older, the same jokes don't fall. We don't have the same cultural references, you know. So there's some of those logistical things, but also just recognizing other folks might need more structure to thrive and then kind of when to step forward and when to be a bit more explicit or offer support in a way that, you know, is goal-oriented versus kind of allowing someone to kind of do what they want. And as long as it's, we're heading in the same direction, the whole project is thriving. And I think the final thing I've learned along the way, but mostly this is going back to the challenges, is how to be a constructive reviewer. So we've all had the reviewer to problem. And I think the more knowledge we have, you know, it's easy to say going again for different disciplines, oh, why don't you do X versus in the case that you've done Y, here's a way that Y could be clear or stronger or more convincing to someone who doesn't necessarily have why is their primary orientation. And I think just kind of the tone and the, that is allowing the science to be more constructive. Yeah, I think it might be good to clarify for people who are not in social sciences that the way that it works is usually that you would um, submit yeah, a written piece, a paper to a journal, and then other scientists, usually from the same field, but not always, would review that paper, give feedback, um, evaluate it also, whether it fits the journal or not. And then you're in this process of constantly giving each other <laughs> feedback, actually. And this is called the review process. So maybe that's good to, to clarify that this is something that we also do on the side in our job. And it works as much in the classroom. So the constructive review works for giving student feedback as well. So we often use like the sandwiching technique. Here are things you did well, and here are ways to improve future work, right? So the idea is not just this one essay, but this is one of many essays or papers, depending on the language and the way it's described in different countries. One of the many pieces of work you'll do, here's the type of things that you could do in future work that will make it more clear to your reader. So I do, I do actually use it in my teaching as well as uh, academic kind of publications. This brings us to the next section, which is the present. We want to ask you and find out which paper you brought with you today to our podcast. Sure. I brought the paper Students in the Street, Education and Nonviolent Protest. And this is by a researcher out of Norway named Sirian Dalum. And now we're super curious about finding out what's your perspective on this paper and why you think this paper is an outstanding one. I think it is outstanding for kind of three main reasons. And this, again, probably reflects as much my own orientation to academia as maybe objective uh, criteria. So it's a new level of analysis. In the paper, the author kind of takes an existing data set 
and adds a new layer to reveal new insight. And this is more common in peace studies than in psychology or education, but it's in a way to kind of add value to the literature. And the new level of analysis, I think, gets us to think about things in both the opportunities, so what is available to individuals, and why they choose to make those actions. And then the third reason is it offers hope. So this, again, is a bit more of my change in focus over the last kind of 20 years of my career. But I think it provides a way to think about interventions in the future, right? So it's structural. So it also helps us think above the individuals, where are the contextual things, the contextual elements that can support them in the future? And we have this grandma question. If you listen to our podcast already, you know this question, but we want to hear how you answer this question. So if you had to explain this paper to your grandma or your granddad, how would you do this? What are the most important things to know about? Well, this is great. So my folks are from the United States and they're older. So they're already grandparent age. So I have my parents, my own parents in mind. And the way I would explain it, what I would say, so imagine... A protest. Think back to the 1960s and the civil rights movement in the United States. So think of those folks, those on the front lines. Many were young and many were educated. And those faces, those who sat at the counter, who picketed peacefully, who marched, those young folks were less likely to use violence. And as a result, those nonviolent peaceful protests, those tactics, were more likely to achieve its aim. So in this case, there was legal reform in the United States. Norms were changed. So the civil rights movement worked because young and educated people were using nonviolence, and that brought about social change. And we see that not only in the civil rights or the United States, but in other countries around the world. So in the 1990s, the student movement of Otpor brought down the dictator Milosevic in Serbia using art and peaceful protest. They brought about regime change. Um, and we can think of it as well as kind of contemporary protests where we don't know the outcome, right? So these are kind of historic examples, but Just the role of the umbrella movement in Hong Kong and what are and the creative ways that young people are using now to peacefully protest and demonstrate and how they can achieve those aims, whether it's regime change, law change, or even territorial disputes. I think I was quite surprised by the fact that so I learned that through the paper that the socioeconomic context of participants was not taken into account. So that was really new to me, but I'm also not familiar with this kind of literature. So that's one thing I learned. And the next question I want to ask you is, why is this paper important for the field of diversity research then? So one of the things that I think is important about kind of taking a new level of analysis is a lot of times we think about maybe schools or communities, and we think about kind of the type of person or the different social groups that make up those communities. And I think this paper really points to the roles of universities and not to be too simplistic about it, but in times, university is the first time that people are getting out of their local school or out of their local neighborhood. In different contexts, that might vary. But if you go to your local school, you might go with folks that look like you and live around you. And so, for example, in Northern Ireland, most of the students when I was teaching there at university, that was the first time they were meeting someone from the other community. So the Catholic-Protestant divide in that context. And that was the opportunity for them to not only meet others, but to think about the world in a different way. And so what this paper particularly focuses on is the role of universities in providing capacities and opportunities or preferences that young people are then using in these social movements. 
And so for diversity researchers, if we think about the role of the university, bringing people together, the capacities that they learn in those settings, it has implications not just for kind of their own well-being, for their own friendships, but also potentially for social change, for future improvements, right? The other thing I think that's important about this piece and this type of research is it says, how do we change regimes? So we know that autocratic regimes or more dictatorial regimes typically have less opportunity or less respect for diversity and less respect for minority rights than more democratic and more participatory structures. So what this shows or what the evidence suggests in this paper is that by shifting, so the transition from autocracy to democracy, so from kind of relative dictatorship to relatively participatory, where leaders are held accountable, that shift has positive implications for the future of diversity science and for more diverse societies, so more protection for minority rights. And would you say that it is actually one of the tasks of a university to educate students on Well, I guess it starts with critical thinking, but also with actually activism in a way. Yeah, absolutely. And this is not my direct area of research, but implications from this paper and related papers are exactly like you mentioned. So critical thinking. So the ability, again, to think about what are the structures to recognize injustice And then also the civic engagement or citizenship. So kind of what are our rights, but also what are our duties? What are the capacities we have to organize, again, peacefully, sit-ins, boycotts, uh, stay-aways? What are the ways that we can do that? And I, I mean, when I reflect back on my own university days, you know, I can see the seeds of that as well. You know, there were ways that we organized on campus that were about our immediate environment, but those same kind of skills and techniques can be applied at scale and can be applied in other settings, including in my own job or including for school teachers and how they work in the classroom. So including democratic practices among children is a way to kind of foster that through the life course. So I think there's a lot of implications for thinking about critical thinking and this second section of like citizenship and civic engagement. Yeah, I think this is already like addressing how this can be helpful for pre-service teachers too, and how this can be helpful in school. Is there anything else which could be relevant for future teachers? Anything on your mind? Any advices? Well, I think the other thing that this does, I think, in this paper is recognizes agency. So for movements, so social movements, protests, you can picture kind of headlines in the newspaper. For those that had a higher kind of activism, higher participation of young and educated people, they were more successful. So I think we can, you know, have a long view for pre-service teachers on how we can help not only those individuals in our classroom, but in the long-term societal change that is constructive, right? So it's still contentious. This is not pacifying. So it's not, oh, like we all get along. It's like, no, we disagree. This is an unjust law, but we have nonviolent ways to change that. So we're not just going to sit by peacefully. We're going to do a sit-in that is peaceful to make that social change. And I think for teachers, sometimes it's, you know, kind of nice to imagine your students there making the change kind of once they leave your classroom and they're out in the real world. So thanks for sharing this. And when I was reading this article, I was wondering, because the focus is so much on like people with higher education and how that's helpful or that leads to like more nonviolent protests and so on and so forth. And I was like, hmm, does this also promote kind of a stigmatized view on those who are like less educated and not in higher education. But now the way you framed it, it's more about, okay, so what do we do with those in higher education? How are they, like, how can we make them protest, like, 
peacefully, right? Did I get you right? Is there anything you want to add on that? Well, and I think you raise a really important point. And this is about university educated kind of youth. This particular paper, though, comes in a broader line of research that looks at the link between education and peace building. So there is a great kind of set of systematic reviews by Erdal and colleagues. Bartal, coming out of Israel, had done some really interesting work that looked at early childhood education, primary school, secondary school. And we find that kind of the positive link, meaning that if you're more educated, there's less violence, less political violence across lots of other societies. So although this paper is focused on university students, there's a broader literature that links kind of education with greater peace measured in different ways. And even some of our own research has shown, and this is a paper that I'm in mind that I have with um, Shelley McCune-Jones, when teachers use more democratic practices in school, the youth in there, so these are teenagers, 14 to 16, they endorse more nonviolent beliefs, so I can change things nonviolently, and have greater civic engagement and collective action. So there we're kind of, it's a different approach, right? Which again, it's back into more traditional psychology education, you know, do kids perceive their teachers to be democratic? If so, then they have more support for nonviolence and more civic engagement. So we see this kind of at that level. This particular paper is kind of taking a step way back, thinking about the movement as the unit of analysis versus that individual child or that classroom. So it's a complementary way to kind of slice at this really important question, but it's different than we would typically use in psychology or education. Thank you so much for sharing. I think it's important to address this and be very clear about that. So the final question for the present part of our episode is, what are you currently researching? So there is a lot going on in my Helping Kids Lab. One of the major projects that we're working on is funded by the Irish Research Council, and this is directly about children's inclusive peace building. So it's building on some of the previous work that we've done cross-culturally, so in Kosovo, Republic of North Macedonia, Israel, Northern Ireland, Croatia. And here we're focusing not just on kind of conflict rivals, so thinking about diversity, oftentimes in conflict settings, there's kind of a historic majority or higher status group and a historic minority or lower status group. And those conflict rivals typically are the ones who are brought to a negotiation table, right? So at the end of a conflict, the, the peace negotiation is happening between what we can think of as the warring parties. And what we've looked at over time is What happens in that next generation? What happens for the children from these two predominant communities? How do they get along? And in each of these settings, schools are separate. So children from one background go to a school with their own, and kids from the other background go to separate schools with their own. And so that's kind of where I was coming at with the idea of why university can be important. It's often when they're getting together with folks from the other community. And so what we're looking at now is not just conflict rivals, but also other minoritized groups. So for example, refugees ethnic minorities. And here in the Republic of Ireland, there's a highly stigmatized group of Irish travelers. So that's a domestic minority group that has been on the island forever. Um, but they still are kind of historically excluded. So we're trying to understand how do children share these peace dividends? So how do they literally, their pro-sociality, helping, sharing, caring, civic engagement, how do they share across multiple group lines when there are multiple outgroups, whether it be refugees, Irish travelers, um, someone from a different nationality, or someone from a different religious background. So this children's inclusive peace building is really the next wave of trying to think not only about conflict rivals, but also the multiple forms of diversity there in Irish society.
thank you for well doing this important work. We're really looking forward to hearing the results or also to hearing the process, actually. Um, and this brings us to our next section, the future. And I would like to know with a topic that is dealing with trauma, you said that in the very beginning, um, some very traumatic stories that you encounter. Um, I was wondering in general, which changes you would like to see in the future, but actually more specific, how can you also as a researcher maybe protect yourself uh, from all of these topics taking over your own, you know, private life and other aspects of your life that you might also want to protect from very traumatic or negative topics? <laughs> no, I mean, I think you're asking good questions and there is not a simple or kind of easy answer. But I think when I think about my role as a researcher and particularly when I work with these communities, so that means kind of with my collaborators internationally who are living in post-conflict societies or post-accord contexts, when I think about their research assistants, when I think about the children and the families that we're interacting with, kind of, I think it's important to recognize there needs to be some space, some shift in the research culture. And that at different times can be thought of as maybe career life balance. At other times, it can be kind of family work, depending on someone's life stage and chapter. And I think if there is more opportunity to have these conversations, to see different models, and again, to work cross-culturally, I think that's where I've gained my largest insight in how research can be done differently while still being a human, right? Still recognizing the humanity in ourselves and our team and with those with whom we we work, who are ultimately kind of sharing the knowledge that we put into a paper or share with our students. So what might be really like some hands-on advice or things that you have learned maybe to really protect uh, these different domains or like the private and the work environment, for example? I have been in a relatively privileged position since I graduated. So from my PhD, I've been in permanent posts. So I try not to forget that, but at the same time, that has been my lived reality. So I just want to put that as a as a caveat is that And I also think of this as a developmental psychologist. So I do think of these things changing over time, different emphasis, different waves, right? What works in one moment isn't going to be what works in the next moment. So I think a lot about chapters. Um, some things that have really worked for me has been, again, at the structural level, right? We as individuals might make certain choices, but we actually need leadership <laughs> to make them. And so if I can, I'll do it in my lab. But I think even more broadly, we need to be advocating for these changes within a university system, if that's our context, or within the school system, if we're working, you know, how can we work with other school teachers or principals to make these kind of small changes. So one is around emailing out of hours. And I've worked at an institution that really respected the non-working day. And we were not allowed to email our colleagues before 7 a.m. or after 7 p.m. Now, again, the recognition was we all have a delay send. Use it, right? Like you can write the email if you're choosing to do it because that suits you and your life or your commitments, fine. But the other people don't need to be receiving it. And at first, I kind of felt like that was more window dressing. So kind of was more superficial. But I found when I wasn't getting the ping, ping, ping of those emails before evening, I could shut myself down, right? So by it's not just about me not checking my email, but they aren't even coming in. And I found that small structural change from the leadership, setting the norms really helped me as an individual buy in, right? I didn't have to change it around me. I was part of that community that respected it. 
And I think that also has to do with setting norms with our students and then equally from our students to us. So for example, that same institution had a 48 to 72 hour email policy. So it said, if you email me, I have 48 hours or 72 hours to get back to you. So it just slowed down the pace of expecting a response. And so, for example, you could say to students who maybe had an assignment due, if if you email me less than 48 hours before it's due, I can't get back to you in time. You know, so they're not like, oh, I have this question. And, and then they're disappointed. And so it helps create overall norms. It slows down the pace. It's a bit more planful. And I found that those two changes, so not emailing out of hours and kind of setting norms at a school level or department level, depending on how you think about the different kind of groupings within a university, really helped create a culture of respect for other people's time. Um, and that was both for teaching and for research. And do you also have some, because you're, of course, now in a position where you're also managing. Uh, so, yeah, you have been for a long time. Are there ways where you try to protect your employees or your co-workers' private time or private life? I like to use colleagues, but colleagues. yes, I know what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> Collaborators. Collaborators. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah. So I think a lot about that as well. And I think, again, there are small shifts. So there are often at universities, there are policies of kind of core working hours. So that is tries to be at least family friendly or recognize that there are going to be diverse needs outside of someone's control. And particularly, I think about school drop off, right? School starts at 850. You have to be there. You can't get there early. You can't be there late. And then you have to deal with traffic after. So even you all were quite like flexible with me. And I, you know, I don't start a meeting before 9.15. I will not be on time. There's no way to do it. So that kind of flexibility, I think, is really important. And so just communicating those norms with your team. What is the reality? When can you show up? If you can't show up, then let's not schedule a meeting then. So core working hours typically in Ireland are between 10 and 4. That might look differently in other contexts where maybe the school day starts or ends at different times. And I think a lot about international work as well. So most of my teams are in different time zones, and it is really hard to find a time that suits so for example, I was just arranging a call with somebody in California, which is eight hours behind. And, you know, I won't take a call after 7 p.m. my time. So I can only talk up till 11 a.m. their time. And that's and so we just found a day two weeks from now where they were available at that time and I was available at my time. And that suits. So again, it slows down the process. There, you know, little of what we do in acad academia is urgent. And so finding a time that works for everyone releases that pressure that, you know, you need to be there at a certain time when actually you just need to change the day and everybody can be there at a time that is convenient for their time zone, as well as kind of the time in the day with their family. Yeah, and many of our, I really recognize what you're saying. And I'm wondering, because many of our students will later uh, start working in schools as teachers, as pedagogues. And uh, I have the feeling school is also a very demanding work environment. Huh? You have to be on at all times. Uh, you have, well, very clear working hours. So there are certain hours that are fixed and then a lot of stuff that comes in addition to that. And I wonder, because that is also a job, I think, that can expand to, you know, you could spend all of your free time on preparing the next uh, class. It's the same with us at university, right? So there's actually endless possibilities to spend all of your energy into making your teaching better, into being there for your students, into increasing the quality. So do you have any advice on how we can stop ourselves <laughs> at a healthy level to provide, you know, the good quality teaching that we want, but to still stay, you know, functioning, happy individuals in quite demanding settings? 
Yeah, this is a challenge, like you're saying, for school teachers, especially with young kids, right? Because the energy has to be there. And then with teenagers, you have to balance their hormones. And there's challenges at each kind of phase in development with the type and the age of the children. I think an important kind of self message is around the idea of it's a marathon, not a sprint. And this was also really important in those early years, you know, where I had more energy. So I thought I could just sprint all the time. And then I quickly realized, oh, man, I am tired. Uh, And so kind of taking a longer period of time to measure success, to measure impact, and think not only about that one day, But over the school year, are you going to have that time and energy? Again, thinking about the calendar for us, we start school September 1st. Like, is that going to be sustainable in November, right? At the peak of like exhaustion, but right before you have the hope of, for us, the the winter break, you know, so whatever the annual cycle is based on the global north or south and the academic year kind of, is this pace sustainable? And there might be weeks, again, there might be chapters like the first week that is busier. But just because that week is busier doesn't mean the second week has to be, right? And so I think if we kind of allow ourselves to have higher moments, but then don't make that the norm and dial it back, bring it back to something reasonable, it allows kind of a natural flow. I think if we are super dogmatic and say, I won't work past X, the reality is some weeks it's going to be that. You're going to have a parent-teacher meeting at night. Okay, well then bring back those hours on Friday afternoon to walk the dog. You know, there are ways to balance it out over the course of a week, over the course of a semester. And so to allow the ups and downs to kind of balance each other out over time, I think is really important. Yeah, thanks. That's some really valuable advice. For me. Maybe, Charlene, you can also add from your own experience, well, more the practical side of it, I guess. Yeah, I'm thinking about something different at the moment, which is Twitter. <laughs> so <laughs> Twitter is... I think it has these two sides of um, sometimes I feel like, oh, everybody's making progress. Wow, what are they working on? All the projects, all the funds, all the grants, and so on and so forth. And that can be motivating and not motivating. So what I like about Twitter is I'm thinking about Tiffany Flowell. She has been a guest in our uh, podcast too. And sometimes she's tweeting about today I decided to say no to this thing or today I decided to rest. Today I decided to take this time off. So now and then she's, I feel motivated by her of taking it slow, you know, not taking the fast path. So I'm thinking about this and I appreciate it. What you're tweeting on, Laura, too, like really, I appreciate that so much. And just this combination of getting a lot of work done and taking deep breath. Yeah, I think the saying no is key. And again, it's going to look different in different chapters, right? So again, I am coming at a place where I have a permanent post, so I recognize that. But I still think it's important to do even in the early stages. And so just as a very concrete thing, it's a little bit silly, but I have a notebook that I keep track of. And again, this is how I different ways that I think about time. But in the back of this notebook, I have a page that says, I said no, and I didn't die. Like I just, every time someone asks me for a thing and I think, oh, Oh, I really want to do it. I'm so flattered. And if I don't have the time or the capacity or the collaboration to kind of bring that to life, I say no. And I write it down in the back of the notebook and I can look at it and say, oh, look, these are things that I said no to. And it wasn't the end of the world. So I also have my family. I also have my career. I have myself as a human being in this world. And I think that keeping this track of the saying no list is really important. And if it helps establish a friend group. So I have this friend group on WhatsApp. And like when one of us says no, we'll just send it to each other. And we're like, good job. Well done. You know, and we celebrate <laughs> oh, this <wonderful>. idea. <laughs> yeah, No, they're the best. We talk about a lot of other things too, but it's reinforcing to have folks recognize not just the success, but also the protection of self, the protection of your own time. So you can do what you want. You can do it really well, but you're not spread too thin. 
That's a great. I immediately wrote that down for myself. <laughs> I think it really connects nicely also to the CV of failures. Do you know yes. this one? So yeah. to just keep track, uh, not only the CV that we always write to apply to places where we say which grants we got and the successes and the degrees and all of that. But to actually have a separate CV that actually says all the programs we didn't get into, all the things we submitted for publications that were immediately rejected from a journal. So to really also keep track of these things. And then for me, it's very inspiring to read those CVs from senior scholars who we think had a very clear, successful path to where they are. And then you can see, oh, they also had the exact same moments where they were yeah, rejected, where something didn't work out. So I think that ties nicely into a certain culture of also celebrating the no's and the, well, not celebrating, but like making them more normal, the rejections, the saying no, the drawing boundaries, right? Mm. And I'll offer this, I'll go one step further. I keep it on my actual CV. Oh, <laughs> you guys, I'm shameless. So I have every grant I applied for, even if it wasn't funded on my actual CV. That's great. Now, obviously, if you have to do a two pager for a certain grant, you're only going to put the successes. But I think it's important to show future, you know, employers, other researchers, these are all the ambitions I had, even though they weren't successful. You know, we know, particularly with funding, the, the call rates, the success rates are so low, that I think it's important to say, listen, I've been it's not just the hits, but this is the broader work that has gone in. With papers, usually you can find it in another home. I'm often not apt to give up on a paper, so it just is delayed in the year that it comes out or the outlet. But I even have my non-successful grants on my CV and just say it was submitted but not funded. Now, who knows if that's a good advice or not, but it's something that I do. And I think that brings us to the final question already, which is, how do you stay motivated in your job as a researcher? You shared so much, but maybe there's more to share from you. Yeah, again, I think, um, well, I've already revealed my notebook method. So I'm still older than most of you and your listeners. And so I like a pen and I like the page. I like to write things down. So I have for my own day-to-day -day life, a post-it. And so for those who maybe aren't familiar, it's like a small square piece of paper. And if I can't fit my daily goal on that post-it, then it's too big. You know, like the list can't be longer than a small square piece of paper. And then I also have each month I kind of sit down and I write on a single page of this small notebook, what are kind of my goals? And I have different sections. So one's called life, right? So the life is on the page along with the paper. And that life goal in my current role is like I'm applying for Irish citizenship, right? So it's kind of what are the papers and documents I need to apply to that? And that's as important and on the same page as my monthly goals of certain papers or grant deadlines. And I think kind of having the daily goal and that monthly goal helps balance the pace, right? If I don't get to everything, that's okay. But I also know kind of in the long term, this is where I'm headed, right? For this month, these are kind of the big picture things that I'd like to accomplish. And that way, again, if I feel like I run out of time at the end of the day, it's okay, pick it up tomorrow. And eventually, if it doesn't happen in that month, it might get, <laughs> might get dropped altogether. So that's like a small kind of way that I stay motivated is to try to have goals that are calibrated to the amount of time that I have. Another way I stay motivated, we've already talked about kind of my use of language is with my collaborators or my students, depending on how, you know, we think about them. And I don't know if it comes from guilt or maybe more solidarity, but I love the discussing with friends, the building that comes, the creativity, bouncing off ideas, the free space to brainstorm. Um, I find that very motivating and the idea as well that you can kind of take turns. So someone might take the lead in one project or paper or component, and then I would come in at the second or vice versa. I really like that kind of back and forth that comes with and through collaboration. 
And then finally, I think for me, and maybe true of a lot of academics, as well as kind of school teachers, is we're kind of intrinsically motivated. We're curious people, right? We kept going to school and we still want to be in school. So I think it's important to remember, especially when things get stressful, we get paid to do a pretty sweet gig. You know, um, if you're working at the university, a lot of this is learning. A lot of it is reading. And also, if you're working in schools, you're helping that next generation kind of build a new society. And so I think it's important to remember that we get to learn in our jobs and that we need to create that space so that we can do the things that we love that brought us into this field to begin with. So what advice would you have for junior researchers? I think my advice, well, for junior, early career, and really for anyone in a new position, even if you're transitioning, um, is ask, 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 ask the question. I think so often we're afraid, we think that norms are unspoken, but they need to be named. And most oftentimes, it's not even that someone's afraid, they don't even know that they're not telling you. And I think because I've moved countries, I've moved institutions, I'm able to see that more. And I realize how many times it's been important for me to be in the room and just raise my hand and say, but why? And that kind of just shifts the focus. We know from social psychology that groupthink is a very powerful force, but it takes one single dissenting voice to shift a conversation and to open up new realities. And I think for these junior folks, which I used to be, and I still am at times when I move to a new place where I'm still new, I still don't know the norms. I think it's really important to just ask the question, raise your hand, speak up, and know that you're probably voicing what others are too afraid and kind of to see your role as kind of helping others in that way. And I think also for junior folks, you all have skills that your senior or more established folks don't. So you maybe know a new stats program or you're on Twitter, right? So you're on social media. You know what's happening in a way that someone who maybe isn't having access at that real-time level. Open science practices are so much more common now. And I think the junior researchers have this real pivotal role to educate or to manage up to kind of teach the relatively senior folks in kind of gentle ways about these new norms. So one is speaking up to name a norm and the other is shifting them to kind of more democratic, more open practices as well. Thank you so much, Laura, for joining us today and for helping us to increase visibility of outstanding social scientists as yourself and of cutting edge research. So thank you all for listening and talk soon. We want to thank Minor Revisions for the music, Max Kersten for post-production, Lotte Koeman for logo design, and Zeynep Alpay for artwork. Make sure to visit our website for bonus materials and to follow us on social media at Researching Diversity Podcast. Stay tuned and talk soon. Music